Trial Brief with your host, David Otto. I want you to imagine being accused of something you didn't do. I mean, we've all been in that situation, I think, at least once in our lives. But I, I want you to go further with that. And I want you to think about being accused of a crime that you didn't commit. And then take it further than that and imagine that you've been convicted by a jury of that crime that you did not commit. And then imagine further that you've served 25 years, a 25-year sentence for a crime you did not commit. For some people, that's not just something they imagine. It's something that actually happened to them. It's a living nightmare. The Brooklyn County District Attorney's Office, the Kings County District Attorney's Office under District Attorney Eric Gonzalez, issued a absolutely staggering report on July 9th of this year. This report chronicles 25 wrongful convictions that were identified by the Brooklyn DA's office by the Convictions Review Unit. This Conviction Review Unit started in 2014 under the leadership of the then newly elected District Attorney of Kings County, the late Kenneth P. Thompson, and his then counsel, Eric Gonzalez, who is now the Kings County District Attorney. And they launched the Conviction Review Unit, which was created to investigate and remedy wrongful convictions by examining certain prior prosecutions and determining whether those convictions were reliable, fair, and just in light of the facts known at the time and discovered subsequently. And what it uncovered was really astonishing. And we are very, very fortunate today. I'm very fortunate to have the Kings County District Attorney Eric Gonzalez here today to discuss this really amazing report. And I urge all of you to read it. It is fascinating and and eye-opening and will give you a real insight into the criminal justice system. And it will also give you an insight into what this Brooklyn district attorney is doing to try to prevent wrongful convictions, which I think all of us are on board with. So without further ado, I welcome the chief law enforcement officer of the County of Kings, Brooklyn, New York, Eric Gonzalez. DA Gonzalez, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I read the report, the wrongful death conviction report that you released on July 9th. I have to tell you, as a former prosecutor, I was a former line DA. It really is an amazing document. And it's an amazing document to me because as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, this report is the first time an elected DA has conducted a comprehensive study of his own office's wrongful convictions. Is that accurate? It is. Uh, It's the first time that a district attorney has attempted to diagnose what went wrong with convictions from their office. And it's the first time that courts have ever unsealed these records to share with outside organizations that we did this project with, like the Innocence Project and the law firm of Wilmot Hill. Can you give us a little background how this all came to be? The Brooklyn Conviction Review Unit is considered a national model of how cases are reinvestigated and the examination of claims of wrongful conviction. Uh, We've been doing it uh, for about five years now, and we have vacated 28 wrongful convictions to date. This report was looking at the wrongful convictions of the first 25 people. What we discovered was there were collectively 426 years of imprisonment 
of these 25 individuals, 24 men and one woman, three of these people died in jail. And so the scope of the human tragedy of these wrongful convictions can never be underestimated. It devastated 25 people. As I said, some never got out of prison. It devastated their families. It let down the families of those who had been murdered. They thought someone had been held accountable for their loved ones uh, killing. But in fact, the wrong person had been taken off the street. And it didn't keep our community safer because we had people not responsible in jail. And so the human tragedy cannot be underestimated. The goal of the district attorney's office in holding people accountable and protecting the community uh, did not happen in these cases. There could be no bigger tragedy than a prosecutor convicting an innocent person. And so that has to be said. As the district attorney, I've been open to being more transparent about the work of this office. You know, DA's offices are often considered to be black boxes. Information doesn't flow out of them easily. In part, when cases get dismissed, they're automatically sealed, and that prevents public disclosures. The fact that we were able to get a court under a very limited basis to unseal these records so that this report could be done cannot be underestimated. That took a lot of work to get the courts to agree to do this. Um, there was work done to protect the parties, you know, the names used in the reports are pseudonym, but the actual documents, the detective files, the transcripts, all of the relevant information was provided to the Innocence Project and to Wilma Hale under a order that allowed them to use it to help write this report. And I think it goes to transparency. It also goes to public trust to have these organizations working as independent arbiters of what went wrong, as well as the lawyers in my office. I think that it's very critical of prosecution and the work that we have done as prosecutors, but it also highlights in these cases that there were men and women in the Brooklyn DA's office in his conviction review unit that worked very hard to vacate these wrongful convictions. And what I hope it does, it convinces other prosecutors across the country who think that they don't have a wrongful conviction problem in their jurisdiction to really read this report. Because what this report showed was there were a lot of systemic and structural issues that led to wrongful convictions. Those conditions exist in DA's offices across the country, especially um, in cases where there's a lot of pressure to solve and prosecute a case. And I think that it can be a roadmap to others to learn the lessons that we painfully have learned in Brooklyn about things that go wrong in trial cases so that they can do the training and change the incentives in their office and the culture in their office to minimize these wrongful convictions. And I'm going to say the most important piece that this report really revealed. There's a lot of reasons for wrongful conviction. There were investigation issues. There were prosecution issues, defense issues, judicial issues. But all of these things could have been prevented with more guidance and more training and also a commitment not to proceed in cases with thin evidence in a lot of cases. The overarching issue in this report that I think is so important to understand is that we can prevent many, if not all, of these wrongful convictions if we have better safeguards. Well, this report, it's staggering for a number of reasons. And one of the things that struck me, and again, I have prosecuted cases and I have defended 
defendants in criminal cases. So what was staggering to me is there are so many stages in the criminal justice system that can contribute to a wrongful conviction. I mean, it, it starts with the interaction with the police. It, it goes on to the conduct of the prosecutors, the quality of the defense lawyers. I mean, there are some cases that you cite in here where the defense counsel really did nothing and not only did nothing, actually hindered their, their clients' cases. And the thing that was striking to me was the unreliable scientific evidence with the technology we have today, whether it's DNA, whether it's arson investigation, you name it, that wasn't available back in 1985. And there are so many points in, in a criminal prosecution where things can go terribly wrong. And I think this, what this report really does is point that out. Yeah, I agree. One of the main uh, points of inflection for prosecutors to really question themselves and, and really sort of to be more skeptical of their case is the concept, you know, we'll call it tunnel vision, but we call it bias confirmation. And it's how we use and review and look at the evidence that is favorable to our theory of the case and how we easily disregard or try to synthesize that information to make it fit into our theory as opposed to really taking an honest look at it. Um, we see that bias confirmation has played a tremendous role in many of these wrongful convictions. And whether it's simply not really um, proactively uh, investigating an alibi defense or being dismissive of evidence that points to another suspect, that we understand that there's a lot more that needs to be done in the investigation case of a case before it moves forward. Um, there's a lot of issues relying to credibility that um, I think often uh, as prosecutors, we say, well, that's the jury's providence to decide credibility. We may put in a testimony that is less than credible um, and say, well, all the blemishes and what will be up to the jury to decide. And, and I, I, I take a different approach to that. I think prosecutors have to approach these cases with a sense of moral certainty before we move forward and not just leave it up to a jury to decide. I think, you know, that was more common, let the jury decide. But if we have questions and doubts, I think that should be a red flag. And you're right. And in fairness to prosecutors, there was a lot less science back then. We did not readily understand um, the issues related to eyewitness identification, cross-racial identification. We did not understand the concept of false confessions. Uh, we didn't believe that someone would confess to a crime that they weren't uh, guilty of. And we know that juries did not believe. And that may have been a limitation to the adversarial system because a defense attorney would say, my client you know, only confessed because that was the way that detectives would simply stop interrogating them, but that they didn't do it. And, and that concept that someone may falsely confess was clearly not something that I learned about when I was a baby prosecutor. And so th there are a lot of um, points that we now have additional information. You mentioned Austin investigations, you know, bite mark investigations, things that we thought was your rock solid science. Um, as we move forward now, we know a lot of that is erroneous. And DNA has really established in a number of cases, you know, how often um, eyewitness identifications 
are inaccurate. And so we've always understood that our witness could be credible in that they believed that they identified the right person, but we know the accuracy has been an, an issue. And so the, this report really shows the number of cases where a, an investigation, especially one that's rushed, could wind up in the human tragedy of a wrongful conviction. Yeah, and I think the long-term effect of this report, uh, the, the great benefit is that other prosecutors and other offices hopefully will follow suit with what you did, and hopefully they'll learn from the mistakes that have been laid out in the report. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a really, really a, it's going to be a very valuable tool down the road. David, you know what's interesting also? With the passage of time and, you know, with some hindsight and a thorough reinvestigation of these cases, some of them were not even close. Some of them, the flaws were so obvious, but under the constraints of, let's say, in the 80s and 90s in Brooklyn, where homicide rates, you know, were over 800 per year in the borough and a number of cases in the volume, we saw investigations that were not thoroughly um, done. We saw prosecutions that were rushed. And there's another important factor that I think we've seen, and, I, and this office has taken some, some changes to prevent this, is the way discovery was or wasn't provided back then. I, I was recently reading a transcript of a, another case um, from the 90s, and during the middle of the trial, routinely the prosecutor was turning over bits and pieces of discovery and information, um, which was permissible under the, under the law. It was right before that witness testified. But the blindfold law of discovery and the way defenders had to represent their clients, but also the way DAs were often just getting that information from a detective right before that case went into the courthouse, I think. It really showed how those cases could not be investigated and how you couldn't really spend a lot of time thinking through um, the problems because you really, this stuff was just being turned over as the trial was happening. And, and we've changed our discovery practices here in Brooklyn um, to kind of prevent um, a lot of the things that I've seen that were, you know, contributing factors to wrongful convictions. One of the cases that is in the report is a case that you were intimately familiar with and, and is close to your heart. Do, do you want to talk about that? About Brian uh, Davidson, which is a pseudonym, but... Sure. I, I mean, it was a very terrible, um, high-profile case. I remember hearing about it as a young person. I was probably finishing high school um, when it happened. When he was convicted, I had just uh, started, you know, my first year in college and you know, we're, we're two, two boys, I would say, right. You were one year apart in age, um, grew up roughly in the same neighborhood. Uh, I grew up in East New York in Brooklyn. The crime happened nearby. Um, you know, raised by single mothers, uh, shared a lot in common. He was implicated in a very terrible sexual assault robbery um, case of a bunch of other guys because of many failures, but also a a wrongful identification. But there was a lot more to that particular case. Um, He was convicted. 
I was able to continue on with my studies and graduate from college and ultimately go to law school and come back to Brooklyn where I grew up and become a member of this office. And uh, he spent 30 years in jail. There's a lot of ways that we know he was not involved in the case and that he was innocent. There was also DNA evidence that also helped exclude him. But the thought that we grew up within one or two miles of each other, we're about the same age, and how his life and my life took different you know, trajectories as a matter of you know, fate. Um, because had he been more fortunate and maybe he would not have been convicted, you know, we know this in not just the system, we hate to admit it, but money plays a big factor in the scope of your representation, um, whether or not you're incarcerated before trial and able to fight your case outside. And so there were a lot of factors that led to his wrongful conviction, but it struck me that, but for the grace of God, you could find yourself in a situation like he was. Um, you could find yourself in a situation where you're being identified and not responsible, but not having the resources to fight it. You know, for 30 years, he always maintained his innocence, actually wound up spending more time in jail because he wouldn't admit guilt. And it's really heartbreaking to know what happened to him and that good intentioned people who were trying to bring justice to this victim were the cause of his wrongful conviction. It's heartbreaking. It really is. And it really makes you think. And as an attorney, uh, it, it really made me think. And, it, and I, I still think about how we can make this system better. And this report's going to go a long way in doing that. So thank you for doing that. I want to change gears a little bit. Before we spoke today, I was thinking about, you know, just an incredible time to be a big city DA, especially in Brooklyn, New York. I mean, we're, we're probably less than two months, well, we are, we're less than two months from the killing of George Floyd and the subsequent protests that are, that are still going on. But um, it seems like it was three years ago at this point. You know, there's so many things going on. And you're the DA during COVID. You're the DA during this time of, of civil upheaval and unrest. You know, I just want to get your thoughts about that. What goes through your mind when you get up in the morning and go to work? That I am very blessed to be able to serve as the district attorney of one of the largest counties in America, one of the most diverse, one of the most counties that have issues involving impacted communities with our criminal justice system. And I am grateful that I've been given the opportunity to serve. It's been challenging to say the least, but we created a platform here in Brooklyn when I was elected in 2018, and I had served as the acting DA prior to that, we created a, a program called Justice 2020. And much of the conversations that we're having around criminal justice reform, about policing reform, and quite frankly, even around COVID, is about disparities and structural and systemic issues in our society that lead to unfair treatment. And Communities of color for a long time have really paid the price for, for different you know, economic disparities and the way laws are enforced differently. Um, there's the, we've paid a price in terms of public safety 
because communities have not trusted law enforcement because what they feel is unfair enforcement. And so what I've been working on over the last three years is how do we keep the people of Brooklyn safe? How do we do that effectively? Um, and how do we do that in ways that build trust and try to have a reconciliation with the most impacted communities? You know, prior to this most recent spike in shootings that are directly related to the COVID crisis, um, Brooklyn has done something remarkable. For three years in a row, we have um, reduced our homicide rates, we've reduced shootings, and we've driven down crime, making Brooklyn more livable, more family-friendly than ever before. And we were starting to build back trust in our justice system. So as I move forward, um, I am recommitting myself to building a fair and just and equitable justice system, but also focusing in on those who drive violence in our communities. How do we take those people and separate them out of our community so our families can be safe? I'm not only the DA elected, but I grew up here in one of the toughest neighborhoods in Brooklyn. I'm raising my family here in Brooklyn. Um, and so my, my, my family, father of three young boys, uh, I'm committed to making sure that they can get back and forth safely and that all of us can prosper. And so it's an interesting time, but I actually think I'm the right person to be doing this right now, having grown up in a neighborhood that, you know, had a lot of uh, criminal justice issues um, and being well prepared in the sense that I served for 19 years as a line prosecutor before Ken Thompson promoted me to chief assistant DA in the office and subsequently getting elected. And it looks like just today you launched a new bureau, a new unit to combat aggressive driving in the borough. And it looks like it's designed to protect pedestrians, bicyclists, and other drivers from aggressive and and dangerous drivers. Uh, Can you tell us about what the goal is and how you're going to accomplish that goal with this new program that you launched? The community of Brooklyn is growing and cyclists and pedestrians, and now we have electric bikes and electric scooters. Um, We're all competing for the uh, fair use of our roadways. Um, Brooklyn had a, you know, in 2018, a tremendous uh, spike in the number of uh, fatalities of both bicyclists and pedestrians. And vehicular violence has become more and more of an issue as people have had to share our roadways. And so we see increased aggressive driving. I think anyone who drives in the city has to acknowledge that people are more aggressive is running a red light, people speeding, people not behaving appropriately. We know that there's going to be bicyclists on the road. People are not checking their mirrors. Um, we've had a number of people killed in crosswalks, walking with their families. And so it became apparent to me that street safety crime, such as vehicular issues, need to have the attention of law enforcement. We can't continue to excuse reckless driving as simply accidents. Much of this behavior is reckless. Much of this behavior is intentional. And it can be curbed, but we have to start approaching it with a law enforcement lens. And so we're taking line prosecutors that would normally respond to um, issues 
of violence and saying they also have to respond to the scenes of these uh, you know, fatal accidents and collisions and crashes and investigate it. You know, we had a case uh, a few years ago where a, a person killed a number of uh, people, including babies, uh, in Park Slope. And because the DA went out um, and did a thorough investigation, we learned about the person's background, including the fact that the motorist was told they were not safe to drive because of medical conditions, but, you know, quite frankly, disregarded the medical advice, continued to drive, and then had a medical incident um, that led the motorist to lose control of the vehicle and kill a family of four. So we know that we play a role as prosecutors in keeping the people of our city safe. And we're acknowledging that we have to do more to prevent this sort of uh, vehicular violence from going on. There's too many young kids and, and elderly people who get killed on our roadways simply because someone is speeding or someone runs through a red light. And so I'm committing a, a part of my office to going out and investigating these cases and to kind of help um, the police department because the police department, they're responding to too many collisions and crashes across the city. And so we're putting out additional people to keep additional ADAs in Brooklyn to keep the people of Brooklyn safe. And so that they know that we care about these cases. Um, accountability on these cases matter. And so when someone loses a loved one or someone is critically injured, it's important to them to know that everything was done on the case to actively investigate it on the front end. And so I'm committed to doing this. And I'm, I'm hoping that upon this launch of this new street safety bureau, that this will encourage others um, to do the same and really take street violence very seriously. Well, I really wish we had more time because I have so many other things that I really want to talk to you about. Maybe you come on another time, but accountability, transparency, it sounds like Brooklyn District Attorney's Office is uh, taking all the right steps to, to accomplish those goals. DA Gonzalez, I can't thank you enough. Again, good luck with everything. A very challenging uh, time for you and um, keep up the good work and we'll talk to you soon. I appreciate it and, and I would love to come back on and talk about how we have a safety plan for the borough to keep us safe. It's not only about reform, it's about making sure that our, uh, that our streets are livable and safe, but that we also work to build community trust back into our law enforcement. And it's sorely needed today, as we can see as we turn on the news. And so I am committed to doing my part, not only to make the system fairer, but to also make sure that we're safe. So thank you, David, for having me on today. Thank you. We'll talk soon. On our next episode, David tells his story about a wrongfully convicted client. On behalf of David, once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on The Trial Board.